Well, once again, let me just say welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. My name is Pastor Micah, and uh, you guys, um, congratulations. Uh, first Sunday of 2019, you now have 100% attendance for the new year. Hands up. Good job. All right, so you can pat yourself on the back. Keep that going now for the next uh, 12 months, and we'll be in good shape, okay? So, um, but we're going to dive right into God's Word together this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you underneath the chairs. You can grab one of those and follow along with us there. Um, so back in the fall, um, you know, this is a new year. We're starting a new series today. Super excited about that. But if we kind of think back, right before we started our Christmas series, we were kind of right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and we spent the whole fall going through Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And the very last thing that Jesus said to us before we took a pause there, his last statement that we studied was this, you cannot serve God and money. You remember that? All right? And so we did our Christmas series, and now we're going to take a little six-week jog here through this new series called God's Money, and then we're going to circle back and finish the Sermon on the Mount after this, okay? So we're not done with that yet. We are coming back to it. Um, for all you type A people, I promise you, I'm not going to leave your Bible like half marked up. Okay, we're getting back to that. But first, we want to take this moment because he made a pretty definitive statement there that I think we need to flesh out a little bit more about what does it mean to worship God rather than worship money. And the way we're going to do that is through this series simply entitled God's Money. You'll see why we're calling it that here in just a little bit. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 25, 26, and 27. We're going to be looking at a couple of scriptures in those three chapters. So you can go ahead and navigate over there. Um, and, and, and I think the point that Jesus is trying to make to us when he gives us that statement of you can't serve God and money is that money and financial issues are not just about money. Our money is ultimately and primarily about worship. It's a worship issue. And Jesus is trying to drill into our hearts a little bit here on what that means and how that works. So we're going to take a few weeks to do that uh, in this series entitled God's Money. And, and just to kind of give you uh, a heads up, this is some, an idea that I actually got from uh, Pastor James McDonald. He had a series by a similar title. Uh, and we're not doing the exact series he did, but we're going to kind of leap off in the same direction because uh, what I loved about his series was he didn't just do a series. Some of y'all have been in church for a long time. It wasn't just a series about money, meaning um, here's how you need to give more money to the church. Okay? Uh, some of us have been in those series before. Everybody, anybody been in one of those, right? That's not what we're just talking about here. We want to look at a holistic view of how do we handle money in a way that reflects the glory of God in everything we do. Okay? At work, at home, the way you buy Christmas presents, the way that you go to the grocery store, the way you make investments for retirement, the way that you give money to charity, like in every single way that our lives touch finances, how do we deal with all of that? Not just church, but how do we deal with all of that in a way that is vertically focused or gives glory to God? And so in order for us to do that, the first thing we have to do is talk about perspective. So today's sermon is kind of foundational for the series and it's simply called View It Vertically. God's money, view it 
vertically because it's about getting our perspective right. And when I say view vertically, it's not doesn't mean like go home and stack up all the cash you have and see how high it how high it goes. Right? That's not the vertical we're talking about here. This isn't some new strategy to help you get your portfolio back in line after the last couple months of everything tanking. Okay, that's not what this is about either. It's not even some psychological trick that I'm going to play on you so that your brain can stop buying everything you shouldn't be buying and get yourself out of debt. None of that is what we're talking about today. When we're talking about viewing it vertically, it means having a God-centered approach or God-centered view of our finances rather than having a man-centered view of our finances. In fact, that's the way we should, want, that's the way we should look at all of life, right? We call ourselves a vertical church here because we want everything that we do as a church and as followers of Christ to be vertically focused, to have our eyes set on God and not just on us. And money's just one part of that. But I think for many of us, in order to do this, it's going to require that we have a paradigm shift in the way we think about money. We need to shift how we look at and think about money from the world's view, from our view, from maybe what we've just always thought, to a biblical view, to God's view. How does he view it? And we're going to call that a vertical view. So in, in our family, um, our family likes to eat. I, I don't even know anyone else to say it. Like, you know, holidays seem to accentuate that even more. Both sides, that's just kind of like our girls get it really honest. Like, it just comes from both sides. Like, we get together, there's tons of food. That's just how we do it. And so one of the things that's a popular conversation in our house is the girls are always asking, can we go out to eat? Right? And can we go out to eat today, Daddy, or whatever? And, and I'm sure we're like many of you guys. You know, we're, we have a budget that we use to keep track of our finances, and we have a certain amount of money set aside each month for eating out. Um, and it's not a lot, and so we try to stretch that out across the month and use it strategically you know, when we need to have a meal out and we can't be eating at home or whatever. And um, so most of the time, Daddy's response is, no, we can't eat out today because we don't have the money for that right now. We don't have that in the budget for this month right now. That we, that's already been spent, or we need it for another time or whatever. And pretty regularly, their response then is, well, I'll, I'll pay for it. I've got money in my piggy bank, which is pretty much the same. Yeah, that's what I do. I chuckle, and I'm like, okay. So here's the issue with that for three reasons. Number one, um, there's not enough money in your piggy bank to feed this family of five at pretty much any restaurant, okay? So that means daddy's still going to have to pay for part of it. Um, secondly, the reason we've given you that money to put in your piggy bank is so you can save it up for something down the line that's bigger, more important, that you want to get or you need to get. And so like, we're saving that for something better. And if you take that money, number three, and spend it now on this, that just means that daddy's going to have to pay for something else for you later. So ultimately, daddy's still paying for dinner. Okay? Which illustrates the point of this. There is nothing in my house that they own, okay? I know it's not like super popular view for like 21st century parenting, like kids have rights and all that kind of stuff. No, not in our house, right? You're under my roof, I'm paying the bills. What, everything you have is ultimately mine, okay? Until you're out on your own, everything that you have is mine. It's, it belongs to me. You don't own anything. That's the way it is with us and God. We think we have ownership, we have control of this little pot of money and wealth and finances and belongings and stuff that, that we've 
earned, that we've worked for, that we've built up, that we, that this is mine right here. I get control of this, God. And God's saying, no. I own all of it. And I'm giving some of it to you to use. But it still belongs to me. It's still God's money. So with that in mind, I think what you're going to see from the scriptures here is that there is no portion of my money that isn't God's money. There is no portion of, quote unquote, my money that isn't ultimately God's money. Or maybe an easier way for me to say that is all money is God's money, okay? Hence the title of the series. What he does is he gives us a portion of his money to use. So the real question is, why does he do that? Because that's going to instruct us on how to use what he's given us to use. Why does he give us this portion for us to use of his money? Three things I'm going to show you today from scripture on that. So let's start in Matthew 26. So you got your Bibles there. Go to Matthew 26 and verse 14. We got this little story here. It starts off, it says, Then one of the twelve, that means the twelve disciples, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here's the first point today. God gives me money for a test. God gives me money for a test. So we got this guy that shows up, Judas Iscariot. Now, most people know who this is. They know the name Judas. Like, even if you're not a Christian, even if you didn't go to church, like, even in our greater culture, the word Judas, the name Judas, is fairly well known, and it's always associated with betrayal, right? The betrayer. Like, you've seen it in movies. You've seen it in TV. Maybe you've heard it at work. Like, somebody does something wrong to somebody else, and like, you're such a Judas. Like, like that's the thing. Like, his name has become synonymous with that. So much to the point that in all my years of teaching school and all my years of leading a church and seeing, I've never seen one child come through our kids' ministry who was named Judas, right? Like nobody names their kid Judas because that automatically means betrayer. Like everybody knows that's what it's associated with. And I don't know if you know this, but in, when Jesus chose the, the 12 disciples, in the set of 12, there were actually two guys named Judas which is like such a bummer for the second guy, right? Because like, you're like always being like, hi, I'm Judas. Well, no, 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 not, not that Judas. I'm the other Judas. And everybody's like, I don't know the other Judas. I just know that Judas. And so like, he even actually goes by Thaddeus in a lot of the Bible because, I don't know if it's because of this, but if I was him, it would have been because of this because like that's not how you want to be associated. But this guy, Judas Iscariot, he was um, a betrayer, as we see here in the scripture. But it, first of all, it says he was the one of the 12, 12 disciples, which meant that he had been with Jesus for a while, right? Like this is towards the end. He's been walking with Jesus for like three years now. He knew him personally. He had spent time with him. They had, they had, they had shared meals. They had conversations. They had, I mean, this was a personal relationship for him. And we find out something else about Judas in John chapter 12, verse 16. This will be on the screen, I think. Uh, or actually, I'm, I think I'm just quoting for you. It says there that Judas was basically the treasurer, right? He, he had control of the money bag, is the way that the scripture says it. 
But it also says in that same line, in that same verse, that he was also a thief, right? So the guy who is in charge of the money was a thief, which begs the question of, like, did Jesus know? Did Jesus know, like, that the one out of the 12 guys that he picked to control all the money had this character of being a thief? Sure he knew, right? He was God. He, he knew everything. He was, he, he totally knew. So why would, like, if you, if you found out that the pastor of the church put, like, the, the you know, the, the main convicted thief in our church over the money, you'd be like, yeah, I don't know if that's a wise decision, right? Like, I don't know if that's where you need to be doing that. But Jesus did it because this was a test. This was a test for Judas. He knew Judas's heart. And he wanted to know, Judas, are you going to love God more? Are you going to love me more? Or are you going to love money more? Are you going to use the money that you're entrusted with for God's benefit? Or are you going to use it for your own benefit? Is Judas going to view it vertically? Or is he going to view it horizontally? Just for me. But in this passage, we see something even beyond that. It says that, Judas went to the chief priests, which when I was studying it this week really stuck out to me. I never really quite noticed that nuance before. The chief priests were trying to come up with a way to get Jesus, right? Like they're plotting, they're trying to figure out a way to catch him in a lie, to, to throw him in jail or to get rid of him somehow. But they don't go to Judas. It's not like they sought out the disciples and tried to figure out which one can we turn. Judas went to them. He was the one who initiated the betrayal. Why? Because he loved money. And he saw an opportunity to get some. He even says here, he says, what will you give me? Like, how much can I get? Do you see the greed in his character there? Like, what's the most I can get for this deal? And they give him 30 pieces of silver, which kind of sounds like a lot to us because we don't really deal in silver and gold anymore, right? But like, back then in context of the culture and in context of the, 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 the economics back then, 30 pieces of silver wasn't a lot. Like, it was a good amount, but it wasn't like a ton of money, right? So I'm sitting there going, like, 30 pieces of silver, really, that's all you're getting? For, for betraying this tenured friendship of love and care that you've had for three years? 30 pieces of silver, that's all it's worth for you to be an accessory to conspiracy and murder? That's all it took was 30 pieces of silver? For you to bring God's condemnation on your soul, it only took 30 pieces of silver. Really? That's where Judas's heart was. And it says, from that moment on, he sought to betray him. He sought to betray Jesus for a payoff. Right? Just as long as I get mine, that's the only thing that matters. And as long as I'm taken care of and I have what I want and it's all about me, then it doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. Judas here is the epitome of 1 Timothy 6.10, which says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now notice there, because this verse is oftentimes misquoted, the love of money, not money. Money is not wrong. Money is not sinful. Money in and of itself has no moral value either direction. But the love of money, the worship of 
of money. That's the problem. And through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Judas loved money more than Jesus. And he failed God's money test. I was reading a story this week as I was preparing about a little father who was trying to teach his daughter about money and, and God and, and all these things. And he said, all right, honey, I'm going to give you $2, right? $1, you can do whatever you want with. It's yours, whatever you want to do. The other dollar belongs to God. And so you have to give that to God uh, this week at church. And so the girl's all excited. She's got $2, man. Like she's, she's all amped about her money, right? And so she runs out the door and she starts running down the street to go to the candy store to spend her $1. It's burning a hole in her pocket. Anybody else have that problem going on, especially maybe when you were a kid? Right, so like, I'm just going to, and so she's running down the street and she trips and she falls and one of the dollars falls down into the drain and she loses it. She gets up and she kind of dusts herself off and she's a little sad and she says, sorry, God, there went your dollar. It's funny, but sometimes that's how we are, isn't it? Right? Like, if you go up and you ask somebody, especially a Christian or somebody who goes to church, which do you love more? Do you love God more or do you love money more? They're automatically going to be like, oh, no, I love God more. Like, for sure I love God more. Like, that's an, that's an easy question, not even an issue. And it, it seems like we do day to day because we, we make priorities for him. We, we, we give this to him. We do this. We do whatever for God with our money. But the way we really know is when a test comes, when things get tight unexpectedly, right? When that car repair pops up that you didn't know was coming and you don't really have the extra funds for, when the clothes washer breaks and you have to go buy a new one all of a sudden, right? When you maybe overspent a little more on Christmas than you should have and that credit card bill comes in come January and you're like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do about that? or you lose your job or whatever, like that's just kind of a short list from the Mathis house the last couple months, just so you know. Like, like this is just, things happen, right? And what do you do then? When money gets tight, what's the first thing that you cut out? Is the first thing that you cut what you give to God? What you give to others in God's name, whether it be you know, a charity or whether that be some of you helping a friend or a family member or somebody on the street, whatever. Like, what's the first thing that you cut out when money gets tight? Is it the money that you have been giving to the Lord? It's a test. It's a test. See, we have this conception and we get ourselves in this place where we think that all the money in my bank account, all the money in my house, all my stuff belongs to me. And if there's anything left over, then that's what I give to God. And that's the complete opposite of what God's view of it is. The reality is that all of it's God, and he gives me some of it to use. And oftentimes he gives it to me as a test, to test my love for him. Because as he tests my love for him with my money, then he knows how much more he can entrust me with once he sees how I'm going to use it to love and worship him rather than love and worship myself. So the big question I think on this first point is simply this, are you passing God's money test? When you look at your finances, when you look at how you handle your stuff, when money gets tight and something has to go, 
are you passing God's money test? So God gives me money for a test. Second thing, flip over one chapter now to Matthew 27. Look at verse 57. We're going to look at a different guy now. This is right after Jesus has been crucified. It says, verse 57, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to the Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Second point is this. God gives me money for a testimony. First, God gives me money for a test, but he also gives me money for a testimony. Here we have this new guy on the scene named Joseph of Arimathea, and one of the first things we find out is Joseph is a rich man, right? Which is interesting because um, it's a good illustration here that rich doesn't mean bad. This guy actually turns out to be a really righteous man, and he's actually very uh, in love with and worshiping the Lord in a lot of cool ways. And so just because you're rich doesn't mean that you're wrong. All right, you can be rich and righteous. You can be poor and righteous. The amount of money you have does not dictate your heart towards that money or towards the Lord. So Joseph here says he's one of the disciples of Jesus. Not one of the 12 disciples, like the apostles, like the, the main guys, but he's one of the outer disciples. But he's still faithful to the Lord. And what I love is here, it says he, that he went to Pilate. Now, this was a huge risk for Joseph, right? This was a, first of all, this was a big ask to go and ask for the body of a crucified criminal when you weren't family, all right? That was a big deal in and of itself. But in this particular situation, by going and asking for Jesus' body, he's now associating himself with Jesus. This crucified rebel that both the Jews and the Romans were against. This could lead to death for him. This could lead to imprisonment for him. It could lead to extortion because they know he's wealthy. It could, it could lead to um, a loss of his position on the Sanhedrin. He was one of the Jewish leaders on the Sanhedrin council. He was putting a lot on the line. He could lose everything he had. All he had worked for, all he had saved up, all he had earned, it could all be taken away by a simple request. But he went and he did it anyways. Because he, unlike Judas, loved God. He loved Jesus more than he loved all of his money and his stuff. And he goes and he asks for the body and Pilate gives it to him. And it says that he takes Jesus and he laid him in his own new tomb. So let's talk about tombs for a second for you don't really understand the importance of this. In this culture, in this time period, the Jews always buried their dead, okay? No one was left unburied. If a body was left unburied, it made the land unclean, and it was this whole problem. So every, even if you were poor, even if you were a prisoner, even if you were, you know, like the worst of the worst, they would bury you, usually like in like a public mass kind of grave or tomb um, just to get you like out of the way, um, but you still got buried, okay? So but if you were wealthy or your family was wealthier, you would have your own family tomb, okay? This was usually a, a large tomb that was carved out of rock, and the entire family for multiple generations would usually be 
housed in this tomb after their death. So when you walked in, there would be like multiple shelves carved into the rock where they would lay different bodies from the family. So it could be parents, it could be grandparents, it could be kids, grandkids. Like they would have this whole family buried together in these tombs. But in this scenario, we find out that Joseph of Arimathea had his own new tomb that he had cut in the rock which probably means that Joseph was probably a first-generation wealthy Jewish person, meaning his parents or grandparents probably weren't wealthy enough to have their own tomb, so he couldn't be buried in their tomb. So, and he was on the Sanhedrin, which was uh, you know, a well-to-do position. So he'd probably come up through the ranks, got on the Sanhedrin, made some wealth, and he had went and bought a big family tomb for his family, him, his kids, his grandkids. Like This was a big-time legacy marker. Right? that you now have a family tomb. And he had paid for it, and he had it all cut out. And the fact that it says that it was a new tomb means that no one had yet been buried in it. Okay? Not him, not his wife, not any of their kids, not any of their Like It is, is a fresh new tomb, never used, reserved specifically for him and his family. And so when he goes and he gets Jesus' body, and he goes and he buries Jesus' body in his own new tomb. This is a tremendous act of generous worship to the Lord. Something that he had worked for, that was a mile marker for his family, that he had built up and saved up, and this was going to like be a legacy thing. Like He's like, no, no, all of that doesn't matter if my Lord needs a place to be buried. And he gave his own new tomb And it solidified Joseph's testimony that he loved the Lord more than he loved his money or himself. I'm very thankful that I was raised by two parents um, who got this. They had a vertical view of money. They they loved the Lord, and we they weren't perfect, and we weren't perfect in our finances, and we went through some hard times, and we had some struggles, and there were some. There were some points in there where, like, we were so poor, we didn't know how to pay attention, right? Like, it was like things were not always what they should have been like that, but they did love the Lord, and they put him first. When I was young, my parents divorced, and the three of us kids, we lived with my mom. So you got single mom, three kids, no degree, working multiple jobs to make ends meet. Like, things were just tough sometimes. And I was the oldest of the kids, and I was the only boy in the family, and so I, a lot of kind of you know, responsibilities fell on my plate to help care for things. And I knew a lot more about our family and even about our finances than I probably should have um, at that age, but that's just the reality of what it was. And I remember one night, this is just like, this memory is so crystal clear in my mind. Yet, you know, you have those certain memories from your childhood that are just like plain as day. And I remember sitting there one Sunday night, we were at church and we were sitting there in the pew and my uh, we, there was a missionary that had come in that day. And, and the missionary was uh, sharing his ministry that night and telling how he was working in this country and all that God was doing and how God was using him and working in his life and working in his ministry. And at the end, it was customary that they would take up a special love offering for the missionary, you know, to give them something to help them continue on in their ministry. And so they start passing the plates. And I remember sitting there and I'm sitting next to my mom and the plate starts coming down the row. And I see mom go into her purse, take out her wallet, and she takes out the last $20 bill that she has in there, and she puts it in the plate. And in my head, because I knew more than I probably should have, but I did, I knew that that was the last money, period, 
that mom had until she got paid in like two weeks. Right? And in my head, I'm sitting there going like, what, whoa, whoa, what are we doing? Right? Like, what about gas? What about, you know, food? What about my lunch money for this? We gotta, I got to eat lunch at, work, at school, mom. Like, we got to have some money here to do stuff. And, and she, but she just, I didn't say anything. She just took the money and she put it in the plate because the Lord told her to do that. And my mom believed that it was his money. And she dropped it in the plate. And that testimony of her faith and her obedience to the Lord has stuck in my mind and my heart for years and years and years. And we went home that night and the next day, lo and behold, an anonymous check came in the mail to our family that covered us for more than we needed for the next two weeks. I'm not promising you that God always does it like that. But I am promising you this, that when you obey the Lord with his money, he loves to bless people like that. When you step out in faith and when you follow the Lord and you don't make it about you and you make it about him, he will run to that. He will, he will shower even more blessings upon someone like that because he knows they're going to use it the way he wants it used was a great testimony. Joseph got that. He was willing to give whatever he had to worship and bless the Lord. So again, this brings us to a question. What testimony is your money telling? When you look at your finances, when you look at how you use what God has given you, what testimony is your money giving to your kids, to your grandkids, to your neighbors, to your wife, to your husband, to your family members. Because let me tell you this, it is giving a testimony. The question isn't, are you giving a testimony? The question is, what testimony are you giving? Because your money and the way you use your money is saying something to everyone around you. The question is, is it pointing them back to the Lord or is it pointing them to you or something else? God gives me money for a test. He gives me money for a testimony. The third and last point today is that God gives me money for a tool. For a tool. Now flip back two chapters to Matthew chapter 25. In this section, Jesus is telling a story or a parable to try to instruct people on how to be and how to handle God's money. Look at verse 14. Jesus starts the story like this. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, let's just pause there for a second. The man, or later on in the story, he's going to be called the master in this story, is God. Okay, he's representing God in the story. He's the master. He's the owner. He controls it. He, he is over everything. And friends, I have news for you this morning. If you have not realized it yet... If you have not come to this point in your heart yet, God is the owner of everything. Psalm 24, 1 says it like this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In Job 41, God is talking to Job and he says it like this in verse 11. 
Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. And again, that's hard for us to swallow sometimes. I think especially in our Western culture, which is so individualized and is so bent on, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard and do your thing and make your money and build your wealth. And it's you, you, you. And as long as you do all this stuff, then you're earning it and you own it. That's our culture. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18. When I found this verse about five or six years ago, it blew me away. Here's what God says about that. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Even the abilities and the gifts and the health and the strength and the opportunities that you've been given to allow you to go out and work and create wealth, even all of that was given to you by the Lord. So ultimately, he is still over all of it. So in the story here, he's the man, he's the master, he's the owner. All money is God's money. So if God's the owner, what does that make us? Look at verse 14. Again, it says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So here's us in the story, okay? We're the servants. We're the people. We're, another word the Bible uses to describe this is the stewards, right? That we are stewards, that God gives us something. He entrusts it to us to steward it for him. So these stewards are entrusted with the master's money, five, two, and one. He gives different amounts to different stewards based on their abilities, okay? God still does that today. That's the way he works, and we see why he did that. Because there's two different responses from the servants. Did you catch that? The guys that got more, the five and the two guys, they go out, they immediately start trading and selling and doing business and multiplying what the master had given them. The guy that he gave one to doesn't do any of that. He is scared and he's lazy and he goes and he hides it and he doesn't want to take any risk of losing it and therefore, he doesn't multiply it. So the question is, how did each steward manage what the master left him? Did they steward it the way the master wanted them to do it? Or did they steward it the way that they wanted to do it? Did they steward it for the master's benefit? Or did they steward it for their own benefit? The guys with five and two did exactly what he wanted them to do. They went out, they used it, they multiplied it so that when he comes back, he's going to have more than when he left. The guy with one made it all about him. 
and he didn't do anything. Go on, verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he's coming back from his trip, he's settling accounts. The master is still the owner. Just because he gave it to them for a while doesn't mean it's theirs. He's coming back and he wants an account for his money. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but one day, God is going to ask you for an account of how you stewarded his money. He's going to want an account from you. What did you do with it? How did it go? Did you do what I asked you to do? Go on, verse 20. And he who received the five talents came and for, forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had two talents came forward, and the same thing happens. He gives him the money. He says, good, Well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 24. Then he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Yeah, that's a good idea. Insult the guy that you just didn't do the right thing with the money. Yeah, that's verse 25. So I was afraid, now we're getting honest, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. And then down in verse 30, he says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. First guys come forward, the five and the two guys. They say, look, you gave us some, we multiplied it, here's, it's, it's yours, we're giving it back to you. And he responds to them, well done, good and faithful servant. So what makes a good servant? What makes a good steward? What this is teaching us, what Jesus is making a point to tell us here is that it's faithfulness. Faithfulness to do what you're supposed to do with what God has given you. That's what makes a good steward. Not how smart or clever you are. Not how successful you are and how much you earn. Not, not being a workaholic and going nonstop. Not being a stingy miser and making sure that nobody ever misspends a dollar of God's money. Like None of that is there. What Jesus says makes us good stewards is being faithful, being trustworthy to do what the master wants us to do with his money. The one who is faithful and trustworthy will be entrusted with more, not just money. God has entrusted us with so much, not just dollars. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards, there's our word, of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Same word. This is what God's looking for. And we need to be faithful. We've been entrusted Again, not just with money, but what Paul's talking about here is we've been entrusted with the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you have been entrusted with a gospel that can not only change your heart and life, but can change the heart and the life of everyone around you. And God asked the same question, what are you doing with what I've given you? Are you using it in a way that glorifies me? Are you using it in a way that brings others to experience the same thing that you have gotten to experience in the love of Jesus? If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say the gospel, it simply is this, that all of us, every human ever born, is broken and sinful and depraved and in need of rescue. We can't fix it. I can't do anything good enough to change the darkness inside my human heart. I can't do anything good enough to earn my way back to God and make it okay for all the stuff that I've already done. And God knew that, and so he said, you know what, I'm going to help you. I'm going to send my own son, Jesus, to come to live a perfect, sinless life, and then to willingly go to the cross and die a sinner's death as a substitute for you, because you can't do it. You're, 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 already, you're already dirty. You're already broken. You're already wrong. You can't fix that. Somebody who is perfect needs to stand in your place and take your punishment for you. So Jesus went to the cross, and he died a sinner's death for your sin and for my sin, the death that we should die because of the way that we have rebelled against God. And Jesus took it for us, and then he went to the grave, and three days later he rose back to life to show that he was God and say, listen, I've done it. It's settled. The account is paid in full. There is no more wrath for you to take if you will only come and believe in me. If you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, you will be forgiven and clean before God forever. And you get to be his child again, and you get to enter into his presence in the afterlife, and you get to live for him in this life, being entrusted with the gospel. And if you don't have that yet, you need to get it today. You need to pray and ask the Lord to change your heart and to clean you and to forgive you right now. But if you already have it, which many of you in this room do, I know I've heard your stories, then God's asking you a different question. What are you doing with what I've entrusted you with. He tells the good servants, he says, enter the joy of your master. He says, come. You've done what I've asked you to do. Come. Experience true joy. Faithfulness leads to joy in his provision. Everyone in this world is looking for joy. They think they're looking to be happy. They think they're looking to have a good time. They think that they're looking for the next thing that's going to, you know, lift their spirits, but that's not really what they're looking for. What they're really looking for down in their hearts is they're looking for lasting, staying power, overwhelming joy. And the joy comes not from the stuff or the money or the acts. It comes from the master. And you get to enter his joy when you do and you are faithful with what he's called you to do. On the other hand, greed leads to angst 
of always wanting more. We all know this way too well, right? Like, we've got to have the new car, and we finally get it, and it's awesome, and the new car smell, and everything, and then like day two, the, one of the kids like bumps into something, and you got to scratch, and you're like, ah, oh, on to the next thing, right? Like, it doesn't last. You get the new phone, and it's great, and then after two days, it's like, eh, it's just a phone again, right? Like, it just leaves us wanting more, and wanting more, and wanting more. But if we are faithful to the Lord and what he gives, we get to experience true lasting joy because he's the one filling us up, not the stuff. But then you got this last servant, the one talent guy. And he says something different to him. He calls him a wicked, slothful servant. Why? Because he failed to manage the trust well. He didn't want to work. He didn't want to take a risk. He didn't want to go out and do what he was supposed to do with what he had been given. And so he hid it. He was only concerned about himself and his life and his comfort and whatever makes it easiest on me. And that's, that's, that's the characteristic of a bad steward. Bad stewards serve themselves first. Bad stewards serve themselves first. He says, wicked, slothful servant, cast him out. Fine, that's what you want? You want the money and the comfortable life and the do it your own way and, and that's what you want? Fine, then go get that. Go get what you're worshiping. If that's the most you want out of life, then you can have it. Go. Go worship the money that's temporal and empty and cold and unloving and will never bring you what you really need. And he turns him over to exactly what his heart desired and worshiped. Because money's a tool. It's a tool to decide what type of steward you're going to be. And I hope my desire, and I, I truly believe that if you're a follower of Christ, you're your desire is to be in the first group, to be the good, faithful steward. And I think what happens a lot of times is not that we don't want that, but we, things get in the way. And things get in between us and God, and they blind us to what it means to have a vertical view of money. So I'm going to give you, as we close here today, just real quick, five blinders to faithful stewardship. Five blinders to faithful stewardship, five things that keep us from having a vertical view and seeing God's money as his money and stewarding it well. Number one is a weak work ethic. Let's be honest with you today. Being a steward is hard work, right? Like, it's not easy. It does require work. It is something that you have to go hard at, but it is good rewarding work when it's done with the right heart attitude. When it's done for him, for his glory, out of love for the Father, it's good, rewarding work. And let me just tell you, friends, we have the best master, we have the most important mission, and we have the most impactful outcome. There's no reason we should not want to work hard for the Lord. 
That should be our claim to fame as Christians, is that, man, they work hard. I don't agree with what they believe. I don't like how they say things. I don't even like some of the stuff they do. They have those cheesy shirts they wear and the stuff on the bumper stickers. Like, I'm not all into all that, but, man, they work hard for the Lord. That's being a good steward. So one blinder is weak work ethic. Number two is a lack of self-control. Good stewards are faithful stewards, and faithfulness requires discipline. A faithful steward's decisions and actions have to serve the master and serve the mission before themselves. And that requires discipline. It it requires making decisions not just for me, but for something bigger than me. It means being willing to say no to myself in order to say yes to God. How many times are we saying yes to me, yes to Micah? And then on the back end of that decision, it limits my ability to say yes to God. Because I've used my money, my resources, my time, my stuff for me, and I don't have anything left to use for him. Because I lacked the self-control. Number three is a lack of integrity. Faithfulness also means being trustworthy. Integrity is staying faithful even when you have the opportunity to cut corners. You see, trust is given in person, but it's tested in private. You can't, test some, you can't test trust in someone when they're standing right in front of you. Of course they're going to do it. You're right there watching them. But what about when you're not? How much integrity do you have? How faithful are you with your money when he is the only one who sees? If we can't be trustworthy and have integrity, it's going to blind us to being good stewards to the Lord. Number four is a lack of love for others. See, a faithful steward doesn't just have the master's mind about money, he has the master's heart about money. Good stewards don't just, don't just uh, have the responsibility, but they have the motivation to do it for the same way and the same reasons that the master wants it done. When you look throughout the Bible, when you look at God's character, God is a God who gives, he provides, he multiplies, he even spends sometimes, he withholds sometimes, but all because he loves his people. And he wants to use whatever he can to draw them closer to him in love. And faithful stewardship means us doing the same thing. Using what we have to love people the way God loves people and to draw them closer to his love. Faithful stewardship has God's love for people as its measuring stick. Sometimes we try to measure good stewardship based on budgets and numbers and, you know, are we hitting this? Are we hitting that? Are we saving for this? I'm not not against any of that. We're going to talk about all that kinds of budgets. We're going to talk all about that in the next couple weeks. But that's not the main thing God's looking at. He's looking at, are you making the decisions you're making out of love? 
for others? Is that your measuring stick? The fifth and last one is related to that, a lack of love for God. Faithful stewardship can only flow from a loving relationship. You can't steward well for someone that you don't love or care about or have a relationship with. The difference here, if I can give you an analogy, is the difference between a contractor and an heir. Right? When, when someone is dealing with the master's resources, if, if you're just a hired hand, if you're just a contractor, you're coming in to do a job, you might do a great job, but you're only doing that job because you're ultimately getting a paycheck. You're doing it for yourself to build your kingdom, to build your business. But an heir is working and managing and helping, not just for their benefit, but for the master's benefit, for his kingdom, to build his legacy, to build what he has. Will they benefit from it down the line if they're part of the, the trust or part of the, the, um, the inheritance? Sure they will. But in the short term, it's not for them, it's for him. That's the difference. I cannot put God's will first until I love him more than I love myself. I can't be an heir until I love like I'm part of the family. This last couple of years, Courtney's parents have been getting older and they've been struggling to do everything that they used to be able to do. And so we've been having to help them out more with just care and basic stuff and things like that and getting help for them. And Courtney's been doing a fantastic job managing all that and been a great example to our girls about how to care for and honor your parents uh, in their older years. I'm hoping that pays good dividends for us later. Um, but that's part of the process, right? And one of the things that she's been helping with is their finances because they just can't keep track of all the bills and the bank accounts. And all. Like, so she's been paying their bills for them and handing all this stuff. And so to get it done well, we went and we met with a lawyer and drafted up a power of attorney and a trust and they put her on all that stuff so she can manage all that for them in a way that they want it managed. But in that process, there were actually two stewards involved. There was the lawyer and there was Courtney. And the lawyer did a great job and we don't have any complaints. We appreciate all the work that they've been doing. They're still working on some stuff for us. But the lawyer was only doing it because we were paying them. Right? Like, if there's no money, there's no work. There's no help. He's not just doing this for the heck of it. He's building his business. He's building his kingdom. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not faulting him for that. That's just the reality of what it is. But Courtney, she's been working and she's been doing all that she's doing, not for any personal gain or payoff. She's doing it because she loves her parents. And she wants to build their legacy and she wants to care for them and she wants it managed the way that they want it managed. And it's for them and it's not for her. That's the difference between a contractor and an heir. So that's the big question for us today. Which one are you? Are you relating to God as a contractor or an heir? Because God's looking for the latter. God is looking for faithful stewards who want to love and serve and build his legacy and his kingdom more than build their own. So which one are you? What's that relationship look like right now? Maybe you need to make a change there. Maybe that's a good place to start. We need to get to this idea. We need to get in our hearts this understanding that there is no portion of my money 
that isn't God's money. I'm just a steward. I'm just the heir. I'm just the one helping manage for him, for his legacy, for his kingdom. For some of us, this vertical view of money is a completely new thing. Like some of y'all are sitting there glassy-eyed right now going like, I have no idea where this is coming from. Some of you, this isn't new at all. You've heard this before. You've done this thing before. Like this isn't new to you. But maybe for those of us who it's not new, maybe we still need to go back and decide, are we actually doing this? Maybe we need to reevaluate how is this actually playing out in my life? There are all kinds of reasons that we miss this reality and that we live as owners rather than stewards. But if you want to stop chasing the myth that more money and more stuff and the bigger house and the better vacation and the bigger retirement fund, if you want to stop chasing the myth that all that stuff's going to make you happy, then this is where it's got to start. A vertical view of God's money. The subtitle for this series is Six Steps to True Financial Freedom. Spoiler alert. True financial freedom is not found in how you acquire or manage your money. True financial freedom is found in how you view your money. It's a heart issue before it's anything else. It's found when I stop trying to own and control and I just rest in the care of the God who truly owns it all. It comes when I start living in the reality that all money is God's money. So as we close, I just want you to ask yourself these questions that we've been going through today. How am I doing with God's money test? What kind of testimony am I giving to others with how I use what God has given me? And most of all, am I relating to God as a contractor or an heir? How much of your, quote unquote, money is God's money? Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray. And we're just going to respond with a song of worship to the Lord as we close today. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much. Lord, for this, this truth from your word. Lord, thank you, Lord, for fixing our eyes, not on the temporal things of this world, but constantly, Lord, drawing us back to a vertical view of you and who you are and what you want to accomplish. Thank you, Lord, for being so loving and gracious and generous towards us. Lord, we are blessed more than we could ever imagine. Thank you for providing for us so that we can have the money that we need to live and, and, and do what we need to do and, and provide for our families. But, but Father, just because you give it to us doesn't mean it belongs to us. Father, teach us, help us, show us what it means to see all money as your money. Help us to be faithful stewards that honor you first and foremost in every part of our lives. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for making a way for us through your son. We pray this through his powerful name, Jesus Christ. Amen.